guests this week are Patrick Bolton and Ugo Panitza, and we're really excited to get to talk to them about some fairly glooming, fairly gloomy prospects, um, including the the prospect for a broader sovereign debt crisis, uh, and about some some issues uh, associated with the so-called debt service suspension initiative. So thank you for joining us and welcome. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Ugo. Hi, thank Hello, you for Mark. having us. So me too and I, I were doing, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Hugo, we're, so, we're still getting this whole podcasting thing down. Um, it, me too and I were doing an episode last week without guests and we were sort of joking about how nice it was not to have a real expert so that our, you know, our vast audience um, wouldn't be able to tell how little we knew about the, to about the topic. But um, all good things have to come to an end because our guests today are two of the foremost experts in international economics and finance and a number of other topics that are near and dear to our hearts. So I wanted to start by asking each of you, um, maybe beginning with Patrick, about the likelihood of a debt crisis affecting emerging market countries uh, in the relatively near future. When we raise this prospect with people, a common refrain is that, you know, this is a time of cheap credit, there's nothing to worry about, and yet there are times when I'm skeptical of that reaction, and, I, and I'm wondering um, what you think about the possibility of a sudden stop in the near future. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I, I think um, that it's a, definitely a likelihood, uh, important likelihood. Uh, of course, um, you know, if we knew for sure whether a sudden stop was going to happen, it would already have happened. So one always has to be a little bit careful about making... Uh, you know, making forecasts like that. But um, on your point about easy money having um, allowed the emerging market world to escape uh, the worst uh, consequences of a sudden stop, uh, that's a very valid point if you look at what happened after the March sudden stop and then in the month that followed. Uh, you've had uh, in March... Um, uh, an extremely aggressive and uh, and fast response by the Federal Reserve uh, that uh, has pumped in a huge uh, amount of money into the U.S. economy, and uh, pretty much uh, the same thing is true for the European uh, Union. And combined, these two uh, massive interventions have resulted in um, compression of uh, long-term interest rates and have allowed uh, money to flow back again into emerging markets. Even very troubled emerging markets uh, were able to borrow at fairly good rates because the investors were essentially were chasing yields. They were looking at uh, uh, anywhere in the world where they might be able to get, earn a slightly higher interest rate. Uh, that stimulus has um, run its course uh, in the US things are looking pretty bleak uh, in the US. And, uh, you know, certainly for the foreseeable couple of months, uh, maybe next three months, uh, probably not much is going to happen on that front in the US. M uh, you know, there is, a, of course, a fairly proactive stance in the European Union, but without the US on board, uh, you know, the, the impact of what the European Union uh, does around the world will be limited. And then uh, you have to add to that that the uh, COVID is spreading in the emerging market world. It's getting worse, it's not getting better. <clears throat> and the econ global economy is slowing down. Uh, so combine all of these things and uh, you should be uh, worried about another sudden stop. And some countries are already now in financial distress, like Zambia and Laos, uh, just two countries that I can think of. But there are more. I'm sure Ugo will know the whole list. Ugo, uh, can we? I know you've been looking at uh, some of the specifics, and I uh, suspect that the the general story about how the markets are doing fine, uh, in, in view of all of the money that's sloshing around, uh, maybe it doesn't apply to certain vulnerable countries? I'm not, I'm not sure of that, but my sense was that there are some extreme vulnerabilities in the emerging markets world, especially. Correct. So uh, what happened uh, 
as, as Patrick mentioned, there was this uh, sudden stop in March, and then the situation seemed uh, to improve. But already at the beginning, when you know, so so the Institute for International Finance reported uh, massive flows uh, to emerging markets, uh, um, sometimes in uh, April and May. Uh, but if, if we look at what ha happens, is that these flows were uh, concentrated towards uh, certain countries. And even just looking at the cost of borrowing, we saw that uh, some countries like Chile, uh, the cost of borrowing basically went back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, we had a bunch of countries at the intermediate uh, level of riskness in which uh, spreads went down a little bit. And other countries like uh, you know Brazil uh, or Turkey, so which very, very large countries in which uh, the cost of borrowing uh, remained very high. Turkey is having uh, clearly um, a currency crisis, is facing big problems, so it's a big country. Uh, uh, a few low-income countries, as mentioned by Patrick, already uh, moved into default zone. So uh, what what I what I would expect is that for the uh, next uh, you know months or maybe years there will be a few countries like Chile, which might benefit uh, from the low interest rate at the global level, but other countries will, uh, will, will face problem financing, um, you know, uh, rolling over their, 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 their debt or even financing their current account deficit, especially given, as Patrick said, the fact that uh, the COVID situation um, is getting worse. Uh, one country, some countries did a strategy. So, so Egypt is a country that uh, uh, tried to be strategic and uh, borrowed a lot when the condition eased. Um, maybe this uh, will help the country, or maybe it won't because it will be perceived as having accumulated a lot of debt. So, we'll have to see. It seems like um, the sort of one of the tensions that's present now is that the kind of easy credit conditions are maybe reducing some of the incentive to address debt vulnerabilities on the early side rather than waiting until it's too late. And, and maybe this is a good time to bring up the G20's debt service suspension initiative, which as I understand it in fairly simplistic terms is designed to kind of um, protect against that dynamic by giving uh, immediate term um, debt relief in the form of um, a suspension anyway, if not outright forgiveness to um, the poorest countries. But my understanding is that while a number of countries are participating in that now, private sector creditors are, are completely unwilling to participate. And so um, sort of official sector money in a sense is just being used to stay current on private sector debt. And so I'm wondering um, both about that dynamic and about whether um, when the DSSI renewal uh, uh, takes place, and I think it's expected, whether you think private sector participation ought to be a condition of getting access to that debt relief. And, and I, think, I suspect both of you have thoughts on this, but um, uh, I don't know, Ugo, if you, if you wanted to, to say something on that. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is something that we discussed for a long time with, uh, with Patrick and me too. And, and many others, we, we wrote a paper a while ago about this, and we felt that uh, the private sector should have participated exactly for the reason you mentioned. It doesn't make uh, much sense that the official sector uh, provides uh, that relief and the freed resources are, um, are used uh, to service uh, that with, um, with private creditors. Now, in the case of DSSI, this was not a huge issue for the majority of countries which participated on the DSSI because most of these countries, with, with some exceptions, do not have a very large debt with the private sector. But, you know, if we were to apply uh, uh, debt suspension initiatives of this type to countries which do have uh, a very large uh, external debt with the, the private sector, uh, I think it would be sort of crazy of the, from the official sector point of view to provide that relief and just, you know, while allowing um, the, the, 
this country to continue servicing uh, their private debt. So, um, you know, one of the comments that the private sector folks make frequently is that these initiatives that you guys and have been key in pushing, uh, and I, I bear some responsibility too, but the, the private sector folks say that you're just scaring the markets and long-term your crazy proposals will result in investment in these countries and in their government bonds drying up. And in fact, my, my if memory serves, the private sector, while not providing relief, also simultaneously has been telling emerging market countries, you know, even that official sector debt, you need to be very careful about taking it uh, because if you take it, we are going to look at you a little different. You, you won't look as attractive to us anymore. And so maybe you should just uh, suffer more and then we'll like you more. So Patrick, I imagine this is the kind of uh, dynamic you have come across many times in studying crises. Uh, what, is, what do you think about this, the private sector warning that don't even take the official sector debt and these academics who propose crazy solutions are just harming the market? Thank you, me too. Uh, there are a lot of angles to this question. Um, so just before I, I try and answer uh, the core of your question, I want to come back to something that Mark said earlier. And that relates to the, the, the timing, the ideal timing of a debt restructuring. And the, 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 the fact is that when it comes to sovereign debt, the countries that have too much debt always wait too long. So uh, this is a, a, what history tells us. Even though all the economics literature on sovereign debt says, my God, the problem with sovereigns is they could default and they won't have any consequences. But the reality is it doesn't work like that. And uh, uh, often governments have to be induced to restructure in a timely way. Uh, and so DSSI was a bit of an effort to get that done by saying, this is now, you need the money now for COVID. And so let's provide relief in terms of suspending interest payments temporarily so that you are able to um, use the money when you need it and you don't fall into this trap of uh, continuing to service the debt even when it's become counterproductive. So uh, the other uh, historical regularity when it comes to sovereign debt is that private investors, they would much rather the restructuring being done with the official debt or with a IMF package, with a bailout than themselves. That's the dynamic. It's, a, it's not a situation where the private investors are on their own with the country. They're together with the official sector. And there's this big game going on, uh, you know, uh, let the official sector pay and not us. And so, of course, they will want to say that it's counterproductive to even mention any, any debt relief to the extent that they may be able to get away by putting pressure on the official sector to provide relief and uh, allow them to have the debt service. I think that's the real challenge. And... Uh, the private sector, the, the fund managers of these debt funds, they will say we have, an, uh, we have a fiduciary duty to our investors uh, and um, uh, we can't uh, provide relief if it goes against the interests of our investors. And so then uh, they use that logic to say, well, if the official sector provides relief, then of course our fiduciary duties prevent us from participating. Uh, so the, the whole difficulty is to turn the table, is to say, is to make the calculus about either you force, uh, you face, excuse me, a, a messy, uh, protracted debt crisis, which will be damaging to the investors in the, in the, in the debt funds, 
or you avoid that by providing timely relief. That should be the calculus. Uh, we want the, the private sector to, uh, to engage in. I think that's the whole challenge. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, the, 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 the debtor country, they're caught in between. The official sector would like to change the, the terms at which the, uh, through which the private sector looks at this. And so now they're, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, the borrower, borrowing countries are worried that they might uh, face tougher conditions, both from the official sector side and from the private sector side. Uh, so that's sort of a, a little bit the, the, the situation we're facing uh, today. But, you know, sorry for this long answer. So let me finish uh, uh, by just saying that actually when it comes to the, the, the fears that are put forward, uh, the, 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 the concerns the private sector likes to put forward that, you know, money will be cut off, uh, the uh, ratings will be downgraded, spreads will go up for any country that accepts official sector debt. There's no evidence of that uh, so far, uh, at least under the, the DSSI. Mark, Mark and Mito, can, can I uh, add something and an anecdote since you said oh, that you to give this informal. <laughs> So, so what Patrick said, Patrick said at the beginning, this idea that uh, now uh, most people believe that, uh, you know, countries tend to default too late and, and maybe too little, is now almost common wisdom. So now it is written in uh, IMF reports. But when I wrote this in 2006, so no, 50 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, in an IDB report, I almost got fired. I was called uh, to the board of directors and there was a big fight. And the only reason I was not fired is because uh, Guillermo Calvo is now a colleague of Patrick at Columbia. But at that point, he was my boss. He was the chief economist uh, at the, at the Inter-American Development Bank, defended me. So, wow. so, so things change uh, rapidly. <laughs> Yeah, now it's conventional wisdom, too little, too late. But I, I mean, it, it's uh, fascinating to hear both you and Patrick uh, talk about too little, too late, because my memory is that it, it was this, the belief that any easing of debt burden on emerging market countries that would cause moral hazard was so strong. And it was sort of you know, from the outside looking at economist discussion as a, as a lawyer who understands very little economics, um, it, it seemed like it was an iron law of economics that if you ease uh, repayment burdens, uh, governments will necessarily misbehave even more. And uh, am I correct that, that, that what you're telling us is that that firm belief and I might be having a misperception, that firm belief has now turned 180 degrees. And I guess I, I have a follow-up question to that too, which is if that firm belief has turned 180 degrees among academics who study the international sovereign debt markets, uh, has have those views changed in uh, the markets or are the markets operating on different assumptions? Sorry, that could be either one of you. I'd love to hear what you think, and then I, I suspect um, we need to take a break. Okay, uh, let me uh, let me go first. I have probably less to say than Ugo, so it'd be better if Ugo uh, follows up. My uh, hunch is I am not up on all the latest uh, work uh, on sovereign debt by uh, academic economists, but my hunch is that there's still working on this assumption that um, if you make it easier for countries to default, they will take advantage of it and, uh, and this will uh, deepen moral hazard. They haven't yet caught on to the reality that countries wait for too long. Uh, and what it would take to um, uh, capture that reality in, in the economic analysis is to understand that the people who make the decision whether to go into a restructuring or not are the finance ministers, are the governments, and they are looking, making a political calculus. They're not making a calculus for the interests of, the, of their country. They're looking at 
can I uh, uh, postpone the inevitable for a while and avoid having to face a very stressful and difficult situation, something that might even uh, hurt me politically? They're not thinking in terms of we are the, the, the longer we're, we're waiting, the harder we're making it down the road for the country to, uh, to uh, address the situation. Now, in terms of how the market thinks of this, um, again, I mean, I'm not, be, I'm not able to speak uh, uh, you know, on an informed basis here, but from what I've been reading, uh, the way uh, uh, you know, some uh, negotiations have been ongoing currently, and, and particularly I've been following the uh, negotiations around the restructuring of uh, the Argentinian debt, um, it's, uh, it's not, it's, uh, you know, market, uh, still thinks that it, you know, uh, it, uh, it's not up to them. It's not up to a private investor. Then they're very reluctant to step in and provide relief when, uh, when it's needed. Ugo, did you want to, to add anything before yeah, our break? Just, just quickly. So, uh, as Patrick said, if we look at the theoretical models of sovereign debt, the majority of models are still rooted in this uh, Eton and Gersowitz tradition. So this is a classic model that was written in 98, 1981, anyway, in the early 80s, in which the problem is modeled from the point of view of a, of a benevolent uh, policymaker, which, uh, which has infinite, infinite horizon and is maximizing social welfare over this infinite horizon and under the assumption that uh, if I don't uh, repay, uh, my country is going to suffer a reputational cost for a very, very long period. In fact, in the Eton and Gersowitz model, it's forever. More modern model, uh, models have a refinement on, on this basic Eton and Gersowitz model, but they still operated under this uh, assumption of benevolent social planner, which uh, maximized uh, the utility of a country over a, an infinite horizon. And, and, and I think this is problematic. The, the empirical literature, I think, has, has moved more forward in, in recognizing that this cost, well, first of all, are not you know, infinitely lived, but they might not even uh, uh, very long lived. And, and, and there is an active debate on this. To quote two other colleagues of, of, of Patrick, uh, one of the modern graduate textbooks of international macros, by Martin Uribe, uh, Stephanie Schmidt-Groh, who is also professors at Columbia, sort of give a kind of negative judge, judgment on the state of uh, sovereign debt models in economic theories, basically say that we, are, we have to rethink the basic framework. But since this basic framework, there are some, uh, you know, people are used to, the, to, the, to, to this type of modeling. It's very hard to change. Well, from this discussion of, um, starting with the probability of a sudden stop, but also um, finance officials' incentives to act quickly versus delay. That's probably a useful time to take a break. And when we come back, we can talk about uh, some ways of giving cover or protection to countries that do decide to um, act to, to uh, address debt problems on the earlier side. So take a quick break. So I wanted to ask a question, uh, really of all three of you. Although me too, you can you can wait to the end. So, um, but you are have all recently written a paper uh, about ways that um, legal actors might provide uh, air cover is the the term that you use. But the basic idea is some degree of legal protection for a temporary period to allow debtor countries to either conduct a debt restructuring or in addition to, of course, devote more resources to mitigating the economic and humanitarian consequences of the of the crisis. And so I, I, I want to ask a question just to make the sort of assumptions clear about why we need some legal mechanism to protect countries. So the, the mechanisms you talk about are either their asset protection methods, so preventing 
creditors who do decide to sue from, from finding and attaching assets uh, of the debtor country, or maybe doctrinal mechanisms like necessity, something that, that Me Too and I have written about also, a way of excusing non-payment for a period of time. And I'm hoping you can say a little more about why you think this is necessary. The skeptic in me says that if a country needs a three or four year window to put debt payments on hold, uh, it doesn't really have a, a great deal to worry about. The legal process is so slow and the given sovereign immunity, the, the likelihood of creditors finding assets and being able to seriously disrupt the country's commercial and financial transactions abroad, that likelihood is very low, that maybe there's a sort of two or three year debt standstill just baked into the law in general. So I'm hoping you can say a little more, and I, I apologize for the long question, but a little more about why these kinds of interventions are, are necessary given sovereign immunity. I, I don't know, maybe, um, Patrick, if you want to. Yeah, yeah. First. yeah this, uh, again, this is a really great question. Uh, so um, I think the, the difficulty with sovereign debt, uh, with either uh, in providing relief or in uh, restructuring is that you have uh, a collective action problem and you don't have the tools, contractual tools to respond to that collective action problem. So the only tools you have contractually is the collective action clauses. But collective action clauses only help the majority of the holders of a particular issue to bind the minority. Sometimes you have aggregation across multiple issues, but you're still leaving out a lot of other debts. And because you have this collective action problem among all the creditors of a country, um, the more relief a subset of creditors provide, the stronger the incentive for the others to hold out. And that creates a very bad dynamic. Uh, and uh, uh, legal air cover uh, is in is a simple way of addressing that problem uh, by, if you want, taking away uh, uh, the, the, the power, temporarily taking away a key power that the holdouts have, which is to stay, start legal action uh, to uh, maybe either uh, attach an asset uh, uh, or, or intervene in other ways. Now, your point is, well, sovereign immunity and slow processing courts gives you enough of a cover. Um, that may be true. The, the, the one thing I worry about uh, is, and, and here I'm not necessarily the best, uh, most knowledgeable person to speak on this, but the, the precedent of what happened with the uh, court decision in, the, in, the, in New York with Argentina why, why this uh, suddenly uh, made this much, much of a, a, a more um, problematic problem is uh, that you can have injunctions. Courts can put in injunctions, for example, as they did in Argentina, making it difficult for the debtor country to service a subset of debts while they are uh, uh, dealing with the holdout. So it, or it, it paralyzes, it can paralyze countries uh, uh, you know access to finance for quite a long time and uh, and so having that legal air cover is a, is a guarantee that something like that won't happen Ugo, you next I, I let you me to talk about this <laughs> well it actually mark is the leading expert in the world on uh, injunctive relief so I should turn it on him but here here's my thoughts on this question. So undoubtedly Mark is right in that we're not certain by any means that creditors will be able to successfully attack a sovereign. We could look at Argentina itself, even though in the end, uh, the holdout creditors were extremely successful against Argentina. It took over a decade before they got their success. I, I think the key here, to my mind, is that there is 
the ever-present possibility that creditors will find a judge who's willing to grant an injunction. And the creditors are sophisticated enough to be able to search for that judge wherever they can. Uh, you know, before Argentina, we had uh, Peru and very smart and sophisticated creditors managed to find a judge in Brussels to grant them the necessary relief to really bring Peru to its needs, knees and uh, settle very quickly. My uh, guess would be if you have a lawyer like Mark who can find creative ways of persuading a judge that a temporary injunction should be granted, then even if you'll only succeed in one out of a hundred litigations, then that is enough of a risk to really hamper sovereigns from being able to carry on their normal business, uh, which we saw in Argentina, the, the constant fear that the creditors would be able to seize the assets uh, was what caused uh, damage to economic activity. So uh, Mark, actually, I'd, we'd love to hear what you think, whether or not the, the possibility of creditors finding a new creative way to get an injunction, even if the Paripasu Avenue is shut down, which is not clear to me by any means, but let's say it is, our, our dear friend Lee Bukite certainly would tell us that it's been shut down. I mean, you've actually worked uh, at these firms and know how strategy is uh, formulated. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know. And it's easy for my sort of armchair in my office in North Carolina to be skeptical about the need for air cover of this sort, uh, although I am a little bit skeptical, but I don't really suffer any consequence if I'm wrong. Um, it seems to me that there's the sort of the traditional way that that creditors, holdout creditors have done this is not to impede a restructuring. In fact, the whole model uh, supposes that a restructuring has gone forward, you know, query whether we're in a slightly different world now with some of the the larger funds that have larger positions and whether their behavior is going to be different. But if the if the idea is we need a three-year hiatus when nobody can mess with the the government and the government gets to try to persuade its creditors to to um, give it some debt relief and it can even just call a halt to payments if it wants without worrying. The, it seems to me the right sort of paradigm there is Venezuela, which more than any other country had something immediate to worry about because it has such massive exposure to U.S. commercial and financial markets, especially commercial markets. And it's been years and it isn't it, maybe now we're at the point where the U.S. sanctions are the thing that is protecting it, but it got um two and a half years or so of a hiatus uh, one way or the other. And I'm imagining that in the context of COVID, almost any country is going to get even more solicitude from the U.S. courts than it did. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I am skeptical, but I'm also um, very open to the possibility that the risk itself is enough that it would have a deterrent effect on, on finance officials and prevent them from maybe taking the steps that they need to uh, address a debt crisis. But then maybe the, the underlying logic of the air cover is some kind of signaling logic. Like you have, do not complain about litigation as the barrier to this because we've taken that off the table. So um, there are even fewer reasons not to tackle debt problems now. I don't know. I, I think that 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 I I think that that is uh, an important logic. Although I, I'm interested in what uh, Patrick and Ugo have to say, the certainty of the air cover solutions, at, at least a couple of them, I to me is uh, valuable. Patrick, Ugo, yeah, what do you exactly. think? Exactly. I I'm I'm uh, I, I I think that that's the true, and I I think the signaling idea is uh, is on the right track. Uh, the 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 other aspect uh, is even though we're we're really um, only contemplating a a temporary air cover, 
um, you know, air cover can be renewed and uh, it may be more open-ended than uh, we make it. And that could be an important reason why creditors may be more willing to come to the bargaining table and work out a deal. Uh, um, and if you look at the precedent of uh, the Iraq restructuring, that's pretty much how it worked. And Iraq was able to get a very good deal. Uh, you know, so of course we are not thinking in those terms, but we're thinking that um, the Iraq example at least gives you a, a, an indication of uh, how temporary air cover can create the, the, an environment that's more conducive to uh, providing a, a you know, reasonable, reasonable debt relief and organizing a reasonable debt restructuring. If I can add something quickly to, to what Patrick and, and Mito have said, even under uh, your assumption, Mark, that anyway it's going to take time and, and so why what bother? First of all, you know, even, even if nothing happens, it seems, you know, a very inefficient situation to have just people fighting, uh, you know, for, for years. Uh, so it seems to be a waste of resources. But I, I think uh, the key issue is what uh, Patrick and me to said that have, you know, we now have a huge literature saying that uncertainty is bad for you under many aspects. So uh, having a system that uh, reduces uncertainty, uh, uh, it has to be good. Well, one of the reactions I assume you uh, would anticipate to a proposal like this is a kind of a standard reaction whenever anything is proposed that might um, enable uh, a debt restructuring, which is um, uh, the point that it's going to increase the, the cost of credit. And we've already talked about that uh, a little bit in the first half, but I'm wondering um, if you want to say a little bit more about the empirical basis for that claim. I, I know in, in this recent paper, you draw some uh, empirical insights from uh, both the, the market reaction to when the U.S. abrogated the gold clauses, but also to the market reaction to the Greek debt restructuring. So uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about what that reaction was uh, and also um, talk a bit more generally about the likelihood that this kind of uh, intervention, really intervention by rich countries um, in preventing creditors from using their courts, what effect do you think that might have on the cost of capital? And I'm sorry, I should probably um, facilitate by um, directing that to, to one of you. So, um, Ugo, do you, wanna, do you want to? So, as you said, um, we, we actually talk about three things in the paper. Uh, one is um, some original data work that we do. And I should mention that we were able to do this thanks uh, to, to wonderful research assistants that helped us in collecting data and organizing events, Juhevan uh, Fu and Sehan uh, Choi. Um, so, but before telling you what we did, uh, let me tell you what other people uh, did. So, uh, we start from a famous case, uh, which it was the um, uh, repudiation of the gold clothes um, after the, the Great Depression in the U.S. And, you know, and there was a, a, a judgment from the Supreme Court. I'm always scared to use the, the wrong word when I talk with lawyers, a decision, I guess. Upholding this, uh, upholding this, uh, upholding this, right word. Anyway, saying that it was okay to repay these bonds um, not in gold but in dollars, and people were expecting all sorts of bad things to happen. And there is some research by uh, Sebastian Edwards and um, and Randy Krosner uh, who actually show that asset prices in the U.S. Uh, reacted positively uh, to this decision. Uh, related to the DSSI, this was mentioned by, by Patrick quickly before. There is some recent research by um, Andrea Presbitero and Valentin Lang, which also shows that uh, countries which did apply for DSSI actually had a positive effect on their cost of borrowing, that is their cost of borrowing went down after applying for the DSSI. So there was no negative repercussion there. 
So this is what other people did. What did we do? Uh, we uh, looked at one particular case, which is similar to what we're proposing here because uh, it was a case in which retroactively some contractual conditions in some bonds were changed. And this was uh, the Greek retrofit. So after the, during the sovereign debt crisis, uh, uh, the Greece uh, retroactively uh, changed the contracts in uh, bonds issued uh, with uh, Greek law. Let's specifically introduced some collective action clauses and other stuff. And, and at this point, there were observers that we quote in the paper saying this is going to completely destroy uh, the European debt market because nobody's going to trust contracts anymore. And, and, and this decision by the Greek parliament was challenged in, uh, in several courts throughout Europe. And, uh, and, and the courts always ruled in favor of uh, Greece, I guess, a bondholder. And in many cases, these uh, rulings were unexpected. So there were two surprises. So this is, uh, this is the perfect setting of what uh, uh, financial economists call event studies. So there is a surprise and you look how, how asset prices realize this surprise. And we said, well, if these people that say the, these decisions are gonna be very bad for other European borrowers, we should look at what happens, not to Germany, you know, everybody knows that Germany is not gonna default, but we should look at uh, risky European borrowers. So we look at the four uh, peripheral uh, European countries, which are um, Italy, Spain, Ireland, and uh, Portugal. And we looked at whether these uh, court decisions ruling against creditors had any effect on the borrowing cost of Italy, Spain, uh, Ireland, and Portugal. And we basically find that there was uh, no effect. I get to ask the last uh, question, but I'm going to take that opportunity to ask a last question to each of you. And hopefully Mark will uh, add clarity if I, I mess this up, because I, I do have a question, I think, that is tailored to each of you. And I don't know the answer to either one uh, as usual. So, Ugo, for you, the question is this, the analysis of the US gold clause abrogation or the Greek retrofit is going to bring, I imagine you've already heard this, the counter argument that you know, these are developed countries. Uh, I mean, the Greek decision was really a decision of the European authorities. I suspect that, you know, was, it, it's not really driven by the Greek legislature. Uh, the, you know, the, the rich countries in Europe drove that. And the U.S. decision was, you know, a, a developed rich country. So in both cases, you have the most powerful countries who have these strong uh, rule of law systems, so maybe it's not really surprising that uh, the market said, no, you could do that. We trust you not to, to mess with the rule of law again. And in fact, and I think uh, th there is some research on uh, the Puerto Rican insertion of collective action clauses by the U.S. federal government uh, recently that suggests that there was not a panic in U.S. municipal uh, debt markets uh, as a result of that. So. So that's the question. Maybe would it be in a different story in the emerging markets? And uh, Patrick, one of the questions that as uh, law professors, Mark and I have been talking about and have wanted to ask you has to do with countries that need relief now after having done borrowing in the wake of us understanding COVID. And so let, let me clarify this uh, a little further. So as uh, legal academics or law professors uh, teaching basic contract theory, we often talk about ideas of incomplete contracts that, you know, our, our, our books very often will have citations to some of your classic articles. Uh, but uh, the way in which at least I explain it, and the, I have a feeling I'm explaining it wrong, is that contracts are always incomplete 
Because there are contingencies that parties cannot foresee, or they're just so remote that it's not worth writing a contract to anticipate. But in your most recent work with Ugo, and where uh, I'm a part of it too, but I still have questions, um, this foreseeability that is so important to the legal justifications for courts stepping in does not seem to play any role. In fact, I think you would say that relief should be granted even if the borrowing was done after everybody recognized that COVID was going to cause uh, immense damage to the global system. So I'd love to have your thoughts on uh, how you think about that because my initial intuition was, yes, countries deserve relief for uh, pre-2020 debts when maybe they could not have anticipated the damage, but uh, countries like Brazil and uh, Belarus and Egypt, you know, if they they were borrowing after January 2020 uh, without putting in place clauses that said, you know, if the harm from COVID increases, you know, our debts will go down. Maybe we should be less sympathetic. Uh, so sorry, uh, long-winded, but um, Ugo and then Patrick, please. Uh, Mark, unless you have something to add to that. No, I'll, I will um, add if I need it, but I'd like to hear what, uh, what Ugo and Patrick say. Okay, thanks, Mitu. I actually think it's, it's, uh, our experiment is quite neat under the, uh, in respect to what you're asking. There is another caveat, which I, I will mention later. But remember that what we are uh, discussing uh, in our paper is about uh, acting an action uh, for bonds, uh, which are uh, more debt instrument, more in general, which are issued under New York or uh, London law. So we are not uh, getting involved with the legal system of uh, country X, which has, uh, which has or might have very uh, poor and corrupt uh, uh, legal institutions. We're actually focusing on that, which might be issued by countries with poor legal institution, but that which is regulated uh, by law, uh, you know, of uh, countries with uh, good legal institution, or, you know, maybe they deteriorated a bit in the recent past, but they're still pretty good. So, so that's, so I think the parallel is, you know, there isn't an issue with what you're asking. Now, what you could say is that, you know, maybe we don't, and this is more a question for the empirical exercise, maybe we don't see much of an effect because, you know, the, the European Central Bank is backing bonds issued by Italy, by, you know, the Euro area countries. Uh, that's definitely an issue. But, you know, I would claim that we still observe country risk in this country. We still observe the, the spreads of, you know, these countries going up and down. So if risk goes up, I would expect the spread to move and we, we don't see that. Uh, yes, uh, so uh, I think, Ugo, I, I think you're, you're giving a very uh, a useful take here and, uh, and that will also uh, help me try and an, uh, answer Mitu's question. Um, so I think the key uh, is that um, the relief that's provided through intervention ex post, that, so what, where everyone worries about potentially undermining the rule of law, the key is that it's a rare event and it's under very specific circumstances. Uh, uh, it's when the rare event is a situation where the country or the debtor is desperate. So that's where necessity comes in. And um, to your question about foreseeability, so the incomplete contracts uh, uh, um, framing uh, in economics is less about events that aren't foreseeable than about events that aren't uh, describable ex ante or, or are difficult to describe ex ante. And so to come to your question about uh, uh, COVID and, and some of the debts that were issued by some countries uh, as COVID was spreading around the world, 
these debts don't include COVID clauses. They could have included COVID clauses because now it's a foreseeable event. It has actually happened. But then you ask, well, what kind of COVID clauses would you put in? What are the terms? What exactly are you trying to describe? And then you quickly realize that it becomes uh, very difficult to describe. So the contract is incomplete, not because you can't foresee that a special event will occur, is that it makes it hard to, to say what should be done in, the, in such an event ex ante. And you know, insurance contracts uh, are, are facing with this problem. So very concrete example. So in, their insurance contracts uh, uh, provide um, uh, restaurants, uh, shops, uh, you know, retail outlets uh, with insurance should there be some, you know, some uh, unforeseen event uh, damaging their, uh, their, their, uh, their business. But, you know, many of these clauses say that the payment uh, is, the, 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 the com insurance company is not required to pay if there are other outlets, shops, restaurants in the vicinity facing the same shock. Okay, and now you have tons of litigation going on about whether insurance companies are on the hook or not in a COVID-like situation. And it's because the contract was poorly written in some ways, it's, very, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, ambiguous that you don't know, uh, you, you don't know how it should be enforced. So, so that's the difficulty. So that's why uh, a lot of these clauses are not present. And however, the political process helps you ex post identify these rare circumstances because the political process uh, works on the pressure of constituents who need relief. And when that pressure rises by many people, it gets polit politicians to act. And if that happens sufficiently rarely, they will do the right thing in the right circumstances. That's why uh, one shouldn't be worried about um, a necessity you know, uh, uh, justification for, uh, for reducing uh, debt burden of countries because it's a rare event. It's a rare event uh, and, and, and uh, it's not going to be applied in normal circumstances. So it can't undermine debt contracts for that reason. Well, thank you both, uh, Patrick and Ugo, for, for joining us. And uh, on that last point, it is um, to connect it to the the way we teach contracts, it is an interesting um, addition to stop thinking about courts as the exclusive gap-filling uh, actors, which is kind of our myopic focus when we teach contract law in our first year, and to start thinking about legislators and um, other political actors as gap-fillers. Um, that, that's uh, especially helpful. But uh, we have kept you both long enough and are really appreciative that you could join us. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.